So in John chapter 20, Jesus raises from the dead. The first person to greet him is a friend of his named Mary. She gives him a hug and he's like, don't do that, not yet. Um, he's like, I got some stuff to do. Go tell the disciples I'm coming and then we can do that. So the very first Easter greeting was this, happy Easter, don't touch me. So turn to someone near you and say, happy Easter, don't touch me. And then have a seat as we settle in for a warm and friendly church service. Happy Easter, please don't touch me. Um, I asked our ministry team last night, I was like, should I not say that? Is that too harsh? And Pastor Scott Courtney, our executive pastor said, I'd actually like you to say that every Sunday um, because I don't ever want anyone um, to touch me. Man, we are like really glad that you're here. My name's Christian, I'm one of our pastors um, and we're really grateful to celebrate Easter with you. I was reading some news on, on Monday and an article popped up from USA Today that was uh, titled this, um, why is Easter when it is and how and why do Christians celebrate Easter? That's interesting, like they had my attention. Why is Easter when it is, and how and why do Christians celebrate Easter? So I wanted to know what was written, one, because I think I know the answer to those questions. I wanted to see if they would write the same things that I would have written. But two, I know lots of people who um, don't know what Easter is about, don't really follow Jesus, probably would have looked at that article and thought, what is this all about? Um, and they got the first part of it right. Why is Easter when it is? I don't know if you know this, Easter is always the same day, but always a different date. Christmas, on the other hand, is always the same date, but a different day. It'll be on Monday one year, Tuesday next year, on and on and on. So Christmas, the date of Christmas would be December 25th. The date of Easter changes, but it's always the same day. And the article said correctly that Easter is always the first Sunday after the first full moon after March 21st, the spring equinox. Because Easter is connected to the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar is connected to the moon cycle. It always goes with Passover. So Easter is always the first Sunday after the first full moon after March 21st, which means Easter will never be before March 22nd, and Easter will never be after April 25th because there's always a second moon that's coming by then. But somewhere in between there, Easter is always the first Sunday after the first full moon after March 21st. So I thought they got that right and they made it really, really simple. Good job, writers of USA Today. But then they said this, why do Christians celebrate Easter? And they said they do it to honor the sacrifices of Jesus. And I thought, oh, I wish they wouldn't have made that word plural. Because they didn't talk about cross and tomb. They just said, like, the, the honor the sacrifices of Jesus. So I thought, okay, I'd, I'd have said it differently, but okay. And they said Christians celebrate Easter four ways. They go to church, they pray, um, they give Easter baskets, um, and they color eggs. And I thought, okay, they, like, that is a part of Easter, but they totally missed the point of Easter. I would say they totally missed the purpose of Easter, so my goal today is to teach you the answer to the question, what is Easter, so that you clearly understand not just the parts of Easter that we celebrate, but the point of Easter and what the point of Easter can be in your life. Now, I will tell you this, the way you're going to receive this message um, is probably already been decided based on the shape of your heart. Uh, one of my favorite pastors and authors is from Philadelphia. He speaks in rough, harsh terms like a Northeasterner. And he said, every human being is shaped in one of two ways. They either have a God complex, they don't think they need anything from anyone, they got it. Or they have a God dependency. Something has happened in their life that has caused them to believe they need to believe in something bigger than themselves. I will say this, if you have a God dependency, but you've not yet figured out who God is, what God is, how you will anchor that in your soul, Easter could very well be for you, like the point and the purpose of Easter. 
Um, is Easter going to church? Yeah, I mean, we're here. Is it praying? Um, yeah. Uh, is it giving Easter baskets? I, I hope so. Um, I like Starburst and Skittles if you're making one for me and putting candy in it. Um, you say, is Easter coloring eggs? Used to be, that gets really messy once your kids get to a certain age. Um, all those are a part of Easter. None of them are the point of Easter. What is Easter? Um, I would say as we look at the biblical narrative, Easter's three things. Number one, Easter is the cross. Easter is the cross, and the cross is the most well-recognized and misunderstood religious symbol in the entire world. Let me say it again. Easter is the cross, which is the most well-recognized religious symbol in the world and the most, I believe, misunderstood religious symbol in the world. For this reason, most of you walked by one on your way in today, and it didn't really bother you. If you would have walked in our church and we would have had a 20-foot-tall electric chair in the middle of our atrium, you would have thought, this place is weird. I'm out of here. If you would have walked in and we would have had a 20-foot-tall guillotine, like you would have been like, nope, I'm out. If you would have walked in and we had a big mural of a firing squad pointing at you, you'd be like, don't know what's going on with this church, but I don't want to be a part of it. We sometimes forget the cross was a tool of torture and execution 2,000 years ago. Some of you not only walked by one in the atrium, you have one around your neck. Lots of you have them tattooed on you somewhere. The cross is the most well-known and most misunderstood, I believe, religious symbol in the entire world. And the Easter story begins at the cross. The Romans perfected crucifying people. We know from ancient history, Persians crucified people. We know the barbarian Germanic tribes crucified people, um, and we know the, the, the Romans crucified people, and they were the last to crucify people because they made it the most extreme form of torture and death that the ancient world had ever seen. As a matter of fact, the scholarly writers of the day talked about crucifixion. Plato talked about it. Socrates talked about it. Cicero talked about it. Horace talked about it. And they all basically said this, civilized people shouldn't do that. It's too bad. Rome was actually not allowed to crucify Roman citizens. You could die in any other way but crucifixion because that wasn't for civilized people. And in the fourth century, Rome said, we should stop doing this. And they began to hang people on the gallows instead because they said crucifixion, just too bloody, just too brutal. Yet that is where Easter begins, on a cross. Four men wrote stories about the life and ministry of Jesus. In scripture, one of them is Luke. Luke begins his Easter story at the cross. Jesus is being led away to be crucified, and it says in Luke 23, 32, two other men, both criminals, because they only crucified criminals and slaves, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, this was a hill in Jerusalem kind of made out of granite and limestone that looked like a skull if you were looking at it head on. They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself. If he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar, which was like a painkiller, and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, saying, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. In eight verses, three groups of people taunted Jesus on the cross. 
The crowd standing there watching, the criminals hanging beside him, the Roman soldier guarding the bottom of his cross to keep people away, all said the same thing to Jesus, save yourself, save yourselves, save yourself. Here's what you need to know about Easter. Jesus' purpose on the cross was not to save himself. It was not to prove that he could make it through. It was not to prove that he could get down. It was not to prove that he had power over the cross. As a matter of fact, on the way to the cross, he told the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders, if I didn't want to do this, I wouldn't. If I wasn't willing, you couldn't force me to. Jesus' purpose on the cross was not to save himself. Instead, in the words that he spoke, and in the final words spoken to him, we learn his purpose. While they were saying, save yourself, Jesus was saying, God, forgive them. And the criminal that hung next to him, after he said, save yourself, he made the right request, would you save us? Jesus' purpose on the cross was to save others, not himself. You say, why? Because he was the one God sent to save people spiritually. And what's interesting is two groups of people called Jesus different things. The crowd that was Jewish referred to him as the Messiah. It's a Hebrew word, Mashiach, that was an Old Testament concept of the priest and the king and the spiritual savior who, who would come for God's people, change their hearts from the inside out, and eventually set up an eternal kingdom that he would be a king over. That's what the word Messiah means. The crowd called him the Messiah because they were Jewish. The criminals called him Messiah, if you're Messiah, because they were Jewish. Remember, Romans were crucified. But the Roman soldier at the cross only understood what the Jews had started saying about the Messiah, that he would be a king that would conquer the world. So Rome killed him in case he was a king that was a threat to Rome. So the soldier at the foot of the cross said, if you're the king. He said, well, was he the Messiah or was he the king? Kind of, he's both, technically both. But as the Messiah, his first job would be to save people spiritually. And then eternally, those who had chosen to be saved, saved spiritually would live in a kingdom with him where he would be the king. Desperate people need desperate things. The Jewish people at the time needed a king to defeat Rome, but he didn't come to do that. He came to save people spiritually first. So when the Roman soldier said, if you're the king of the Jews, well, he was, but God told his people Israel 700 years before the life of Jesus that his king would die for others. Why? So that they could be connected to God. You say, what do you mean God told the people 700 years earlier? For those of you who are not Christians, but you're still looking into it, let me say this. Go home and Google the words fulfilled Bible prophecy. Because one of the reasons that followers of Jesus believe this book came from God is because there's things written 700 years advance, sometimes thousands of years advance, that happen right where they're supposed to happen, when they're supposed to happen, with who they're supposed to happen. The reason that followers of Jesus think this book is supernatural is because God, hundreds of years, thousands of years before things happen, says, hey, here's what's going to happen a thousand years from now. No one can know that if they're not supernatural. So we believe this is a supernatural book. One of those prophets God spoke through was a guy named Isaiah. And Isaiah, in one specific chapter, Isaiah 53, told us what Jesus' purpose on the cross would be. Why did the king have to die on the cross? I'll summarize it in, in three areas. The king had to die because sin had to be punished and sin needed to be forgiven. The king had to die because people were broken and people were being hurt by broken people and they needed to experience healing. And the king had to die because there was no pathway for imperfect people to be with God. So in Isaiah chapter 53, 12 times, Isaiah says, 
God's Messiah is going to have to die, but here's why he will do that. Here's the 12 reasons. He'll be pierced, but for our transgressions. He'll pay for our sin. He'll be crushed, but for our iniquities. He'll pay for our sin. He'll be punished so that we can have peace with God. He'll be wounded, but it's because we all need some spiritual healing. God will lay our sin on him for our transgressions. He'll be punished. His life will be an offering for sin so that my servant can justify. That means Jesus now has the opportunity to say who is right with God and who's not because he died on the cross. He'll bear their iniquities, which means he'll carry our sin. He'll be numbered as a sinner. People will look at him on the cross and say he must have done something wrong. He'll bear the sin of people. He'll make intercession. He'll stand before God and broken people and say, I got them for him. Jesus died on the cross so that people who were sinful and needing forgiveness could be forgiven. Jesus died on the cross so that people who had been broken by the things in their life could begin to find healing. Jesus died on the cross so that people who would want to connect with God would have a pathway to get there. Because of the cross, you are invited to be close to Jesus. You say, why is the cross the most well-known religious symbol in the world? I would say this, the punishment of the cross is precious to followers of Jesus because it was in our place. When we understand our relationship to Jesus, we don't just need the cross, we love the cross because it was, in, it was in our place. And because Jesus died on the cross, we now have this invitation to live in relationship with God. Let me, let me put it to you another way that might make a little more sense in 2023. I'm gonna put two pictures on the screen behind me. Both of these guys are named Scott Stallings. Both of them are married to a woman named Jennifer. Both of them have a post office box in St. Simons, Georgia. One of them is a professional golfer. One of them is not. One of them received an invitation to play in the Masters Golf Tournament, and one of them did not. And as you can probably guess by the pictures on the screen, the masters invited the real estate agent, not the professional golfer. They sent it to the wrong P.O. box. Right names, right wife, right, right, wife, right post office, just wrong guy. And when Scott Stallings, the realtor, opened up the letter that said, you have qualified to play in this year's master's tournament, he thought, not only did I not qualify, I could not qualify if I tried. I can't do what this letter is saying I'm being invited to do. Now, some of us, Maybe not me, maybe me. Some of us would have gone ahead and played the four rounds if we could have as much as we could have and just kind of like my driver's license matches. My wife is Jennifer, got the clubs in the back or someone to carry them, here we go. Um, maybe, maybe not me, maybe me. Some of us would have played the round, not realtor Scott Stallings. He realized that probably somebody sent him the wrong package so he posted on social media, hey, if there's a real Scott Stallings out there who's a professional golfer, I think I got your mail. And the real Scott Stallings uh, quickly um, replied and said, thank God I've been checking my mailbox five times a day for the last five weeks for that invitation. That is a picture of the cross. We are invited into a relationship with God that we did not qualify for and we could not if we tried because of the cross. Like people who know me and have known me my entire life like my mom and dad, my older sister Jillian, my younger sister Marie, when they look at what the Bible says a follower of Jesus is supposed to look like and they look at me, they have to be thinking, how does God love that guy? How's God love my little brother? How's God love my older brother? How can God love my son when he acts like this? The answer is the cross. That's why God loves me. Some of you have people in your life who call themselves Christians. You're wondering the same thing. How can God love them? 
Does he know them? The cross. He can only love them because of the cross. And some of you are thinking about your own life and you are God dependent. You're trying to figure out if God could love someone like you, but you know yourself too well and you're like, how could God love me? The cross. He can love you because of the cross. Easter is the story of the cross. But it doesn't end there. Easter is also the story about the burial of Jesus. So Easter is the cross, but Easter is also the burial of Jesus. So on my birthday this year, February 4th, at uh, Water's Edge Nursing Home in Long Island, New York, an 82-year-old woman died and was pronounced dead at 11.15. At 2.09, they unzipped her body bag at the morgue across the street, and and she was alive. Surprise. Um, It's like, whoops. Um, The nursing home director... uh, came out and gave a public apology and said, we apologize to the patient and her family. We're sure they were all very traumatized um, by the event to which I would add, and probably the guy at the morgue who ends up the bag. Um, like that would, that would be a good guy to apologize to as well because I'm sure he's not done his job the same since that day. It's like, all right, still dead. Um, it, like that, like, you need to know that's not what happened at Easter. What happened at Easter was not that they buried a guy who wasn't dead yet. Um, What happened at Easter is Jesus died on the cross and they buried him. And believe it or not, I think the burial of Jesus might be the most important and impactful, and especially to an Easter crowd, the most important and impactful part of this message for you. Uh, Say, why do you say that? Let me read it to you and we'll kind of talk about it as we go. Jesus had another friend who was there that resurrection weekend named John. John wrote about the burial of Jesus Um, maybe you need to hear this today. It says, later, after Jesus was crucified, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. That's some of you. At this point in your life, at this point in your faith, there is not only no one in the world who knows you're a Christian, there are some people who would be shocked to find out that you are. Like, if you went to work tomorrow and talked about church yesterday... Some of you be like, you go to church? Um, one of your greatest fears is that people might know that you're a Christian. You're a Christian, but it's kind of a secret. I don't want to say that's a bad thing. Don't want to say God can't use you because I don't think it's true. Like, here we have a secret Christian who plays a really important role. God sees him, God loves him, God uses him. So I'm not saying if you're a secret Christian, you're like a lesser Christian. I'm just saying maybe there's a step you could take this Easter. He was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, Pilate was a Roman governor who agreed to Jesus' crucifixion. He came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. This was another secret Christian. He never wanted anyone to see him with Jesus, so he was always with Jesus at night when no one was around. This was a guy who loved and followed Jesus, but he didn't didn't want anyone to know about it. That is some of your stories. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen in accordance with the Jewish burial customs at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden in the garden, a new tomb which no one had ever been laid because it was a Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Let me give the point and then let's just talk about it for a minute. The burial of Jesus can teach us how to have boldness for Jesus. Resurrection weekend is one of those weekends where you go from being kind of secret Christian to 
letting people know, like, I love Jesus. Don't have all the answers. Um, don't know all the answers to your questions, but like, I, lo- I love Jesus. I'm, um, I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. These two guys, Nicodemus, we know, had been a follower of Jesus for three years. For three years, but nobody knew about it. Um, he was a part of a, a political, spiritual class in Israel called the Pharisees. That was like his job and his role. Um, he would have been rejected by them if they would have known that he followed Jesus. Uh, it's very possible his family would have rejected them. Probably most of his friends would have rejected him. He would have lost his title. Like, it would have cost him a lot to let people know he was a follower of Jesus. So it was like, he just didn't let anyone know. He loved Jesus. He just didn't want anybody to know. Um, I feel like Joseph maybe had it harder on this day. We don't really know from the Bible how long Joseph was a follower, but we know that he was a part of the ruling council of Israel, a council called the Sanhedrin. What was bad about that is less than 24 hours before, this group of 70 was the jury that made the final decision that Jesus has to die. So it's not just possible, but probable that Joseph was in the room when like the head dude said, all right, are we all in agreement this guy's gotta die? And I can picture Joseph thinking, please, 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 somebody speak up. Please, somebody speak up. And nobody spoke up. And now he's got the body of this guy that he believed in and followed. I can only imagine what his heart had to feel. Both of their hearts. Something about Jesus giving his life for them. Something about them made them think, I'm going to let people know now that I follow this guy, that I love this guy, that I'm with this guy. Some of you are Christians who... You're kind of secret Christian. So you say, how do I know if, if I'm a secret Christian? How do I know if maybe this Easter is a, is a time for me to take a step courageously into my faith? Let me give you three signs that you might be a secret Christian. One, your faith is private, not just personal. Faith is personal. A lot of things in faith should remain personal. What God's doing in your life, what God's speaking to your heart, probably your prayer journal. Like, There's a lot of things in your faith life that should be personal, but faith is not private. Like, It's not a hidden thing. It's just a personal thing. But your faith for you is private. Nobody knows. Um, secondly, maybe you have a fear that somehow your faith is gonna cost you. In today's cancel culture, to call yourself a Christian could make people think you believe certain things vote a certain way, feel a certain way about everything, and you're like, I just don't want to deal with that. That will cause a lot of heartache, headaches in my life, just not going to go there. And one of the very easiest ways, and the easiest way to take a step publicly, is you've not been publicly baptized. So Jesus said when you become a Christian, his early church would say, repent, so begin to follow God and be baptized. Um, baptism, if you've not seen it in a church, is where like you get in a tub of water and you go under the water and you come back out of the water. It symbolizes that like you love Jesus, you're with Jesus, just like Jesus was buried in the ground. You like buried your old life and, and now you live for Jesus. It's that public sign that you're with Jesus. And some of you know it's your next step and you just can't figure out how to get there because it feels really, really vulnerable. Let me say, I get it because I've lived through it. And it is weird how fear of faith being exposed can paralyze you. I was raised um, in a really small town in Southern Ohio um, named Bainbridge. I think it was the best place in the world for a kid like me 
to be raised. Not really a town, it was actually called a village. We had 2,000 people in it, had a very Stranger Things vibe. We rode our bikes all over town, railroad tracks, playing in the creek. Like That was my upbringing, I loved it. Um, I still have friends from that time. One of my best friends who I met in kindergarten, Jeff, will probably be watching church today from um, where he lives in Ross County, Ohio, maybe with his mom, Bryn, who spent way too much money buying me food um, when I was like at her house. Like, great place to grow up. In second grade, I wasn't bullied, but I was teased um, on the playground. And for the first time, I realized, I think I'm afraid to let people know I'm a Christian. And here's how it happened. Happened with me, probably different than it can happen with you. There were a group of girls on the playground who would run around um, chasing me, and they would ask me this question. Are you a Christian Christian? Rolled off the tongue nice, but boy, it scared my heart. Are you a Christian Christian? Are you a Christian Christian? And I always thought when they said that, why are you asking me that? Why do you want to know that? And it, I, what, yes, I was a Christian, and I don't know that I was embarrassed of being a Christian, but I was afraid to publicly tell someone, yes, I'm a Christian. Those seventh grade girls, when they, or those seven-year-old girls, when they asked that question, to me looked like Jack Bauer with a pair of pliers in his hand, like they were interrogating me. Are you a Christian, Christian? I never answered that question in the affirmative. Even today, when I meet someone named Tara, I'm a little afraid, and I ask my safety team to come hang out with me by the altar until like, like that conversation is over. That was, se- at seven years old, there was something inside of me that said, be cautious with your faith. Could cost you. I think I really learned it the hard way my junior year in high school. I went to a small school, had like 85 kids in my graduating class, little country town, started with like 95, a couple girls got pregnant, a couple guys had to drop out, help their dads on the farm. Some of you were raised in communities like that. We ended up with about 85 walking on graduation. Because I went to a small school, when you go to a small school, you can play in all the sports teams, even if you're not any good. So I play football and basketball and baseball. And somehow my junior year, my baseball team won the state championship um, in Ohio. We like just caught fire and just beat everyone until we were the champs. And on that journey, I experienced my greatest faith tension probably in my life as a Christian. And here's what happened. I had made a deal with God in middle school because that's what middle schoolers do. Um, That if God would let me be good at sports and successful at sports, because that's what I wanted to be. I made a deal with God. If you will help me be good at sports and successful at sports, um, if I ever am good or successful, I will let people know how much I love you. That never got tested until our state title run my junior year. We won our district championship. We beat a team who beat us every year who we never beat, we were never supposed to beat. Probably they were better than us, but on that that day we beat them. And at the end of that game, the local radio station that was covering wanted to interview a few of the players, our pitcher, our center fielder, I was the catcher. We're standing in line waiting to be interviewed. And not only could I not enjoy the game, I had this internal battle. Literally, my heart was beating out of my chest. One side was saying, you got to tell people how much you love Jesus. Another side was saying, don't you dare do that. Your life will end. And it's like this battle raged inside of me. I got to the radio guy who went to my church. His wife served in our student ministry. He knew who I was. He knew I wanted to connect my faith in my athletics in life. Like when he stuck the microphone in front of my face and said, hey, great game. You guys finally won the district championship. What do you think? Like I clammed up and I talked about anything and everything but Jesus. Jesus. I thought if I tell people I love Jesus, they'll know. You say, who's they? I don't know. What will they know? I love Jesus. Why does that matter? I'm not sure, but I just wasn't ready to go there yet. And on the bus ride home, when all my teammates and coaches were celebrating, I was sitting on the back of the bus, more ashamed of myself and my cowardice than I had ever been in my life. God, 
I don't think I'm embarrassed that I'm a Christian, but I am afraid for everyone to know. I don't know what that will, I don't know what that will mean to me if everyone knows. I made another deal on the bus riding home. God, if you'll let us win another round and I get to talk on the radio again, I'll tell the world I love you. Lo and behold, we won our state quarterfinal. I raced up to the radio booth without even thinking about it and they stuck the microphone in my face. I mean, you guys are going to your school's first ever state tournament. I just said, I just, before I say anything, I, I want you to know I love Jesus. He's the most important thing in my life and I'm glad we've done this, but um, like he is what's really most important to me. And like in that moment, my heart grew three sizes. A week later, I'd catch the final strike on the Ohio State baseball field, beat a private school out of Cincinnati and my teammates would dogpile on me and I already knew the radio was waiting and I got to tell people I love Jesus and my heart just keep growing. Some of you, the step you can take this Easter is telling the world you love Jesus and letting your heart begin to grow. So how do we do that? You can be baptized. If you've not yet been baptized yet, it is your first step to tell the world, I love this guy. I don't want it to be a secret. I love Jesus. And I want to I want to go ahead and ruin the rest of the service for you, but I want to get you ready. Um, at the end of this service, in about ten minutes, for those who need to step out of being a secret Christian and get baptized, um, at the end of the service, in ten minutes, we'll close, and I'll give people an opportunity who've never started a relationship with Jesus, but they're God dependent and they want to. Uh, I'll give them an opportunity to start a relationship with Jesus, and then after I've done that. I'm gonna ask people who need to step out of the shadows of being a secret Christian to identify with Jesus. I'm gonna ask them to just stand up wherever they are. Now, for those of you who just started sweating, your palms got sweaty, your legs started shaking, your toes started going numb, you've got 10 minutes to figure out at that moment whether or not you're gonna stand. You know it's your step, you just don't know if you have the guts to do it. Um, You're welcome. The rest of us will continue on in the message and I'll get back to you in about 10 minutes. Easter is the cross, Easter is the burial of Jesus. But Easter is mostly the risen Savior. And I would say if, if Easter is not the risen Savior, it's nothing. That's actually what the Bible says. Easter is the risen Savior. John continues, he ended 19 saying Jesus was buried, verse, chapter 20, verse 1, early on the first day of the week. That was Sunday in their context. That's why we have church on Sunday. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. She said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John was faster. He bent over, looked at the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. So Peter was slow but courageous. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. I love verse 9. They still didn't really understand that Jesus was alive. Verse 10, then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, pause. At this point in the story, here's what Jesus' followers know. The tomb is open and it is empty, but they are crushed. They are not changed, they are not helped, they are not hopeful. They're trying to find where the dead body is. Easter is not the story of the open tomb. Easter is not the story of the empty tomb. Easter is not a story about a hole in the ground anywhere. Easter is the story of a man who died and came back to life. Easter is the story of the risen Savior. 
Now, the tomb is awesome, especially in Israel. One of my favorite places in Israel is the garden tomb. It's the screensaver on my computer. Every time I open the computer, I remember that Jesus walked out of death and into life. The picture on my computer was taken several years ago. On that picture, there used to be a wooden door in the entry of the tomb that had these words inscribed on it, he is not here, he is risen. It reminded people that this hole you're walking into is not what makes a difference. The man who came out of it is the one who made a difference. Several years ago, so many tourists crammed inside that tomb to take a picture and close the door behind him that they could not get out of the tomb once the door closed. So while Jesus got out of the tomb, the tourists were stuck in the tomb. They prayed that an angel might come roll the stone away. Somehow they eventually got out, but they've now taken the door off and that inscription's not anywhere around the garden tomb. I hate it, but I get it. But the important thing about Easter is not that the tomb was open or empty. The important part is that Jesus is alive. Please listen to what the most influential pastor in the history of the Christian church says about Jesus being alive. Listen closely. If you haven't heard anything else, hear this. He said, if Jesus is not alive, don't be a Christian. His name was Paul. He started churches all over the Mediterranean basin. And he said this, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, don't be a Christian. It's pathetic to follow a dead guy who has no supernatural power. His specific words, 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if for only this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus is not alive, Christians are pitiful. They are hoping in something that has nothing for them. But I love verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised and he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The word first fruits is a Jewish concept, means the first of many more guaranteed to come. It was the word when you get one leaf on a tree to think, surely the rest are coming. It was the word when a little bit of your grass turns green to think, surely the whole yard's gonna turn green. First fruits means this the resurrection was not a moment in time, the resurrection is a movement. It means Jesus was not the only one, he was the first one. And now everyone who places their faith in Jesus after they die raises from the dead into an eternal relationship with Jesus. He proved it, he did it, and he said, I'd like to bring others with me on that journey. That's the story of Easter. Mary standing outside the tomb crying as she wept. She bends over, she looks in the tomb, sees two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They ask her, why are you crying? They took Jesus, she said. I don't know where, where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Didn't realize it was him. She thought he was dead. He asked, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you carried him away, just tell me where you put him. I'll go get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, don't hold on to me. There it is. Don't happy Easter. Don't touch me. Um, for I've not yet ascended to the Father, Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord and she told them what he said. What did he say? I've never noticed it before until this Easter. He said, my father and your father, my God and your God. Jesus, the risen savior, is inviting us into his eternal relationship with his God. My father can be your father. My God can be your God if you will follow me. You say, but I haven't qualified. You don't have to. Jesus qualified for you. You get the invitation. Like, but my sin hasn't been punished. Doesn't have to. Jesus died on the cross. You're like, but I don't think my life's eternal on your own. No. But Jesus says, you also can have eternal life after you die. 
You say, I really don't know anyone spiritually. Jesus says, you can be a part of my spiritual family. We'll figure it out together. The question is not, is, is the invitation real? The question is, what are you going to do with the invitation? Because the only thing standing between you and an eternal relationship with God is your father, your God. The only thing standing between you and that is your yes. What's standing between you is not your sin. We had a, uh, we had a single mom in the first service who gave her yes to Jesus. When she was younger and started struggling with guys in her youth, she went to one of her spiritual leaders and he placed shame on her and told her the church was not a place for her. And she's been struggling as a single mom. And some of her friends invited her and she said yes to Jesus because she never knew she could until today. She thought, well, the guy said what I did. No, no, no. I know this book. This book does not say what you do does not allow you to have a relationship with Jesus. He said, but I'm addicted to. God through his Holy Spirit can help with that. But I've been hurt so badly, God can bring healing. He said, but I don't know anything spiritually. You don't have to. The only thing standing between you and an eternal relationship with God is just saying, yes. I didn't qualify. I don't think I can qualify, but yeah, like, I'll play. If I'm invited, yeah, let's go. What has God said to your heart for those of you God-dependent trying to figure it out? What are you going to do? As we close today, if you've never said yes to God, but he brought you here today, so Jesus' Father could be your spiritual father and Jesus' God could be your God, I'm going to give you the opportunity to say yes. And then before we close, for those of you still trying to figure out, am I going to stand, am I not, am I going to stand, am I not, I'll give you an opportunity to do that. But as we close in prayer, let's open our hearts to God right now. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over the room, but hearts are open. What has God said to your heart? If you're here today, God-dependent, yet not understanding that you've been invited into a relationship with God and you've heard today the invitation has been given and all you need is your yes and you want to say yes, just tell God yes. The Bible says that salvation happens when you believe in your heart, which means you become convinced in your soul. I think the God of heaven is communicating to me. You believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth, you pray and say yes, and you'll be saved. If you don't know how to pray or what to pray, I'll say a prayer you can repeat after me. Not really my words or even your words really is the condition of your heart, but to seal what's happening in your soul. I'll pray and you can repeat this prayer after me if today you want to say yes to Jesus for the very first time. You don't have to pray out loud. You don't have to even move your lips from your heart to heaven. You can pray something like this. Just repeat after me, God, Today I say yes to your invitation. Just repeat after me from your heart to heaven, God. Today I say yes to your invitation. Forgive me for my sin through your cross. Heal me of the pain through your spirit. Lead me into my future through your word. Today by faith, which means I don't understand it all, but I am choosing to believe it. Today, by faith, I choose Jesus as my Savior and my leader. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for loving me. 
Thank you for being willing to lead me. Today I commit to follow you. With heads bowed and eyes closed all over the room, if you just prayed with me, I'd love to pray for you. You say, Christian, how are you gonna do that? Don't want anything to feel vulnerable for you. So here's what I'm gonna do. With heads bowed and eyes closed, in just a second I'm gonna count to three and when I get to three, if you just prayed with me, when I get to three all over the room, I'm just gonna ask you to raise your hand and just kind of hold it up quietly where you are for it'll take eight to 12 seconds for me to just pan across the room, one side to the other, front to back. I just wanna kind of see where you are. I wanna picture you and your family. I just, just wanna picture what you're doing. Then I wanna pray that God will bless you as you begin to walk with Jesus. So if you prayed with me, could I pray for you quickly on the count of three? Would you just raise your hands? One, two, three, just right now, right where you are, all over the congregation. If you would like stretch out your elbow, there's a lot of you. This might take 15 to 20 seconds. So I'm just scanning. I see this couple here in the front section. I see some kids in the back left. Awesome, awesome, awesome. I see a couple together. I see a family raising hands. I see this couple here in the front. I'm just now scanning the center section. I see you, sir, on the side. Ma'am, in the back. Sir, right in the middle. Awesome. I got you right in the kind of front middle. Keep them up, keep them up. I see you in the back. Two kids in the back together. I got you. I love it. Family in the back row. All the way over to the side. Thank you. You can put your hands down. God, I pray for these who just raised their hand. It is an acknowledgement that today they accepted your invitation, not because they're qualified or can qualify, but because of the cross, because of your healing, because of your promises to us. I pray that everyone who's raised their hand, God, will feel forgiven. I do not know how to explain that, but I've experienced it. I pray that they might as well. I pray that they literally will feel like the chains of their past have dropped off and they got a brand new lease of life. God, I pray that they'll feel like you are with them, not in a weird way, but God, I pray that when they wake up tomorrow, they'll be aware that the God of the universe is now their God. Like they just feel like his watchful eye is with them in a comforting way. And God, I pray that they will somehow, by all means necessary, begin to learn who Jesus is so that they can know how much he loves them, so that they can learn his way of life and his teaching and so that their lives can be radically transformed by him. Bless them, Lord, for their spiritual decision today. Now, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you are a secret Christian who needs to take the step of baptism before the end of 2023, I'm not gonna count. You've had 10 minutes to get ready. Stand up right now. Matter of fact, I'll count you down. You got seven seconds. Stand up right now, right where you are. I just wanna pray for you. Seven, six, right where you are. Just stand up right now. Five, four, three, two, one. Just stay standing for a minute. God, I pray for these who are standing. I see the father and what looks like a son in the back. I love it. Standing together or standing alongside one another. And God, I just pray already that today, this moment, which probably caused a lot of spiritual tension, I pray, Lord, that their heart is already beginning to grow more spiritually. And Lord, I pray that their um, commitment will lead to follow through and that, Lord, they will be baptized. And I pray their baptism, their heart will grow again. And they'll just be able to kind of walk out of the shadows into a public faith through their public baptism. Give them strength. Give them courage. Give them growth because they've taken this step. You can go ahead and be seated. God, as we close our service today, we just say thank you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that Jesus died for us. Thank you that he rose from the dead so we could too. And God, we just celebrate 
who you are and what you've done in this place today. And we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.